not just that you just game in the living room with a console with a couple of people in front of a controller. Those days are long gone. Or sitting in front of a PC and gaming by yourself and playing some competitive game, right? It is really people in the same house gaming on three different screens at the same time or grabbing your device as you go out the door because you want to play something uh, while you're on the sidelines of a kid's soccer game or something like that. So it's just completely spread out and it really has followed, like you said, that idea of work productivity and then media entertainment. Um, so then gaming is right there in terms of flexibility and just wanting to be where people are already. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing, and today we're very excited to have Tom LaRusso joining us on the Human Insight Podcast. Tom is the Principal User Research Lead at Xbox, and his story, which you'll hear more about today, is captured in our book, User Tested. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tom, and welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Awesome. We are so happy to have you. Um, so you're currently a principal user research lead at Xbox. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your role, uh, your team, and what you're focused on? Yeah, absolutely. So at Xbox Research, we do user research for pretty much anything gaming at the company. So all the games we make, uh, all the games we publish through other teams, uh, and then of course our consoles and all of our gaming experiences like apps and things like that. So um, as a gaming lead, I have a small team and I'm a people manager. Um, I spend most of my time focusing on all of the things that are game related that are not games, actually. I spent a few years in games, but now uh, I'm working on things like our apps and Game Pass and the console and hardware. Um, so all of those experiences that you might interact with while you're trying to get into a game or out of a game or invite a friend to a game. Uh, I find that personally, I love that sort of platform uh, feature set where you can get that mix of productivity and entertainment at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I, I hadn't really thought about it that way before, that there's obviously the game experience, you know, when you're actually playing a game, but then there's all of the other parts of the experience that play into that larger, you know, experience, not to use the word experience, <laughs> for games, but I think you get me. Yeah. No, it's it's amazing. I mean, our the word I say the most these days is ecosystem. You yes. know, Xbox, people think of Xbox as a console, you know, a gaming console that you plug in and play a game on. But for us, it's really all of those experiences, picking up your phone, seeing who's online, playing a game through uh, xCloud maybe, then maybe buying something or sharing a screenshot after you've played a game. Uh, so as much as I love working on games and game design, that's about what half of our team does. And then kind of the other half works on those other platform experiences. Uh, I personally have, have worked on phones and Windows and medical devices and things like that. So when I got back into gaming, it was a pretty easy transition for me to go work on those fun platform experiences. Yeah, that's great. I, I love to kind of think about it in that way, the, the ecosystem. In our recent interview with Crikey in episode 29, it's a startup that has a game in the app stores. Uh, and, you know, I find or I found uh, that interview so interesting um, for one reason, which we'll touch on in a minute. But what I, I guess, didn't recognize until now is that that is just such a, like, you know, focused it, I mean, of course, the game is com complex and there are many components to think about, but they're just focused on the game versus, you know, the the all the other pieces that kind of play into it. What Absolutely. I found fascinating about what they were thinking about, though, is that, you know, 
if you think about the experience world and all the sort of new and innovative ways that people engage with technology, gaming's at the forefront of most of that. Um, and, you know, you're exploring new territory all the time. Um, so, you know, for the time that you do spend or that your team does spend uh, on the gaming experience itself, what are some strategies and ways that you try to identify maybe the tolerance for new experiences or what even the shifting expectations are? Yeah, that's a great question because that's so difficult, right? Um, you know, I think on the one hand, even when you look at a game these days, the games are becoming ecosystems in themselves. So the games will have a store inside of it, will have a friends list and things like that, right? And so one of the real challenges, I think, for any company, not just in games, is when something comes out and is so amazing, uh, some new experience, you know, in gaming, it might be the battle royale mode or a battle pass or something like that. You know, you have to really look deep and figure out, okay, do we go and chase that uh, or do we go in a different direction, right? So in user research, I mean, we're doing our best to deeply understand our gamers, understand what they get out of gaming, their motivations, and then broaden that out to really understand, okay, how do they interact with things in real life? So, um, you know, their expectations for a new game are not just based on gaming. It's based on all the other media they interact with. What's Netflix doing? Uh, what are the, you know, mass transit is doing? Like just, it just is amazing all of the things that influence people's lives by the time they get to sit down to a game in terms of expectations, right? So we just try to take a broad look whenever possible to know, okay, not just, well, one game is, is out now, a second game or a third game is a trend. It's really more about what are they getting out of it? How can we fulfill those motivations with the contents and the games that we're making? And then what do we kind of avoid, right? Maybe it's just a one-off or maybe it plays into their strengths, but not into our strengths. So I think the key there is really trying to understand people, their behaviors and their motivations, and then not to think that we can go figure out what's going to be the next big hit, right? Um, we spend a lot of time working with these teams to try to build confidence as they are going through the decision-making process. I mean, if I could predict the next big trend in gaming, then you know I'd be in a different job, I'd be rich. But we're doing our best that as we're working through just this you know, amount of ambiguity and, like you said, ever-changing landscape, how do we make sure that user feedback keeps getting driven in so it's not just, ooh, this thing is making money, let's go over here and do it, or, oh, let's, let's just switch our franchise to go be more like this. Well, maybe people are in the franchise because it's this way, right? Um, so there's lots of great discussions about that. But really, our role is to keep people centered in that discussion. Yeah, it's super interesting to to think about, you know, how you're looking at your customer beyond just their experience that they have with you or their experience gaming. It, it seems like a theme from this season. We had uh, somebody from uh, James Lane from AAA on the show a few episodes ago, and he was talking sort of about the same thing about how you know, he's, and he and his team are looking at all these different experiences outside of AAA and using that to influence what they create and design. So he used the example of Uber. Everybody loves to use the mm -hmm. Uber example, right? Like it's sort of like that next, sort of like the, um, one of those innovations that sort of changed the landscape of, of experience. But he was, he was mentioning that he used, um, or the team used what they learned about how people were engaging with Uber to actually pull some of that experience into their own app. So when you call AAA, they developed a feature where you could actually track the truck that was coming to you. 
So you could see where it was, similar to how you can track, track your Uber as it comes to you. So I think it's important for our listeners to kind of consider that, right? Like you exist as a piece of somebody's overall life experience. And you have to kind of make sure you're looking at all of the pieces right. around customer to form your strategy. Well, and, and, you know, we also say too that gaming is, you're not just competing with other games, you're competing with all of entertainment and all other ways to spend your free time, right? So we actually talk about Netflix and Spotify and Amazon and just scrolling through Instagram, right? Like I could sit down and play Halo or I could just pick up my phone, watch TV and scroll through Instagram. So what people want to get out of those experiences. And then, like you said, the feature set, what they expect or, or what those other experiences are showing them, um, we certainly pay attention to and then try to figure out, you know, which direction to go in based on that. Yeah, it almost feels like, too, with the entertainment, you have kind of that. It's sorry if I'm stating the obvious as you being in this space for, for years now, but like it almost seems like you have more of those passive experiences, like consuming a Netflix show or mm -hmm. scrolling through Instagram versus like being more involved in the experience as in playing a game, right? And so do you think about the world that way, too, when it comes to entertainment? Yeah, well, and it's interesting because, you know, right now, you know, roughly um, based on some estimates, there's just as many hours spent watching people play games as there are playing games, right? So when you think about Twitch and streaming uh, and just, you know, anywhere or YouTube and videos, um, anywhere that you can just go and watch someone play a game, you know, we figure that's about half the gaming hours. Anybody with kids will probably understand that because instead of watching TV show, they're watching a Minecraft streamer. Uh, that took me a little while to get used to, even being in the industry, saying you're watching somebody play Minecraft, but on this device, you could play Minecraft. But again, it goes back to those motivations, right? And passive, there's this idea of expertise. And of course, there's the personality aspect of it. So not only do we try to understand what people want out of those, but then when we're designing games, we have to think, great, we're going to design this game for the player. And then how can we tweak it and or make sure that it's a great experience for a streamer and then a viewer, right? So what can we do to make watching Minecraft more fun? And it's usually more about what can we do to give that content creator or that streamer the right tools to have a great broadcast, attract fans, things like that. So it's, it's this just amazing playground um, of applied research when you start to think about it that way. Uh, so yes, absolutely. There's a mix of, of passive and active. And then of course there's a range as well, uh, between, you know, within games, right. Um, I think a lot of people think of games as, you know, sitting there shooting people. Um, but of course you're on your phone for five minutes at the dentist, or you're watching something and you have to click a button every once in a while. Um, you know, there's those kind of story driven games. So there's just such a range, but that is a, you hit on something really key, that idea of how interacted, how lean forward versus lean back. Uh, and then the viewing is just a totally separate thing that we're working on as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I can totally relate to um, the consuming of watching other people play games. My kids do that too. Um, but they originally started with watching other kids playing with actual physical toys. And that one blew my mind too. I was sort of like the evolution right. of advertisement, right? It's now about watching other kids play with toys versus seeing commercials on TV like when, when we grew up. Right. Absolutely. And it's a different audience. You know, we talk about gamers, but we also work with game developers. Like you mentioned, someone having the app store. Uh, we work with streamers and influencers, uh, yeah. you know, to make sure, hey, when you when the Xbox comes out that, you know, we have people doing our out of box videos and uh, that it's a great experience for them. We make sure the packaging is good. We make sure, you know, that those kinds of things are going to land well because we know that's the new world. Yeah.
Absolutely. So speaking of new worlds, um, with, you know, all of these forces coming together around, you know, of course, the pandemic that's been going on for two plus years now, everybody's shifting work from home, stay at home, school at home. Um, And then you've got all these other advancements in gaming, like, you know, virtual reality and the metaverse, um, kind of, I'm sure you have many perspectives on that. Um, But I guess curious, like out of all of these shifts and generally people just spending more time at home and maybe even having more downtime, have you seen more people playing games or like has their play frequency increased or have you seen growth in subscriptions? Like curious how that has changed if it has over the last couple of years. And if it has, like, how do you prepare for the future when the future seems a little uncertain right now? Yeah, it was, you know, it's been a rough couple of years and it was really interesting to be in gaming. And and I mean, we're still in it obviously, but you know, as that really hit hard the last year or two, because we started to see people talking about gaming as a lifeline and as a way to be social. Now we know that we know one of the, the biggest motivations around gaming is social um, and especially with, you know, things like Xbox Live and just multiplayer, you know, online play over the last 20 years now. But it was just amazing to see that ramp up and to people talk, talking about how, you know, that was their social, that was their way of communicating with other folks, that was their way of giving themselves or their family something to do. You know, we, we definitely saw gaming increase because people were home. I think there were a few things we saw just the internet increase, you know, server loads across the world just increased. Uh, I am sure, you know, I can't speak to it, but I can't even imagine the amount of Netflix and Amazon Prime and YouTube that spiked during that time, right? But, you know, I think it's a good question. We don't really view it as people being at home or downtime. We are really pushing that ecosystem approach of wherever you are, whatever device you have in your hand, we want you to be able to game. And it's not just us, everybody's working on that, right? So, yes, I think more people are in the home. I think less people are getting out and about, but it's, you know, for us, the future is it doesn't really matter where you are, right? It, it's the, again, the Xbox is just one piece. Um, you know, the console is just one piece of the puzzle. Um, but when I put that down and I go outside or it's in the middle of the day or I'm, you know, somewhere else traveling, we want people to either be gaming or again, kind of interacting with their gaming friends. Doesn't mean they have to be playing a game or even talking about games, right? But if they're chatting, Uh, on a gaming app or if they're trying to figure out what they're going to play later. That's, you know, to us just, you know, more and more of that, just like everything else, everything else is about mobility right now anyway, and flexibility. The interesting thing, I think, when you, when you start thinking about being home, especially is the, you know, remote development, um, you know, people making games from home, again, people streaming from home, things like that. So I think it's going to have some impact, but, you know, I'm really proud of the, gaming industry and especially Xbox and just pushing toward that goal of letting people play where they want to play and with their friends that they want to play with and the games they want to play with. Yeah. I love that. I guess I had never thought about it that way. Like, I guess, so I'm not um, a gamer. My kids are, um, but I'm not my children. I don't understand their, (laughs) I mean, I sort of understand their mindset, but you know, it's, I just have never thought about it as, you know, gaming anywhere. I, I've always just imagined like you're at home with a big headset on gaming, you know, it's like my personal exactly. sort of like bias right. from how I right. think about it. But it kind of reminds me of like old, older days when mobile experience, like mobile phones and the mobile experience has just started rolling out. There was this theory that like 
you know, people don't read on their phones or people don't make purchases on their phones, right? But you see all of that changing over time with the trends and the data. Um, just interesting uh, to, to think about the gaming mindset that way. And I guess entertainment in general. Yeah, that's exactly. In a lot of ways, we're following suit because it's exactly what you mentioned earlier. I, When I was a kid, I didn't think anybody would be watching a movie on a, on a tiny screen for a phone. And then people were doing it. So now they expect games on the phone. Of course, mobile games blew up as well. But you just wouldn't have been able to predict that, right? Anybody who thought that we would be typing on phones more than talking on phones, you know, maybe there were two people in the world that thought that was going to happen, but that was it. So in that case, you know, we're following along following along with what's going on. So it's just, you know, I, it reminds me of an old case study and I won't get the details right, but I think it was a food company or maybe a cereal company that was trying to figure out how people ate breakfast. And so they were putting cameras in people's homes as, you know, as a piece of research. And what they found that they were just scattered all over the house and there was no real like breakfast table. You know, everybody sits down at eight o'clock and has breakfast. It was, I'll grab this. I'll go here. I'll be up in my room. I'll be down here. That really stuck with me because it's not just that you just game in the living room with a console with a couple of people in front of a controller. Those days are long gone or sitting in front of a PC and gaming by yourself and playing some competitive game, right? It is really people in the same house gaming on three different screens at the same time or grabbing your device as you go out the door because you want to play something uh, while you're on the sidelines of a kid's soccer game or something like that. So it's just completely spread out and it really has followed, like you said, that idea of work productivity and then media entertainment. Um, so then gaming is right there in terms of flexibility and just wanting to be where people are already. Yeah, it's fascinating, the the, cha- the pace of change there. So kind of thinking about how your team of researchers who are focused on all different parts of the experience and the ecosystem, you know, how, of course, you're collaborating and working with uh, other teams in the organization, particularly likely the product team. Um, So how do you partner with those teams to make sure that you're creating and delivering these uh, exceptional experiences for Xbox customers? Yeah, you know, the collaboration is is amazing. And it's also the biggest challenge we have right now. And it's not, or at least me personally, it's not collaborating with the teams. It is trying to have a large group of researchers work on individual products and features but work in that ecosystem manner. You know, we joke right now that, you know, 20 years into Xbox, we're still talking about the play button because right now you can hit play and play something on your Xbox, or you can hit play and play something in the cloud, or you can be on your phone and you don't think you can play Halo on your phone, but there's a play button there. So if you hit play, you can actually play Halo on your phone. And so now we're in a world where there could be five different researchers working on these apps or experiences or even games, but they're also interrelated that we are, you know, we're doing our best to figure out, okay, my experience has a play button and so does yours. And so what should it mean in these contexts and how do we work together? And that really goes across all of Xbox, not just, you know, not just research. So I think the the easy answer to the question is, yes, we're, we're deeply embedded with the teams. We are very much in lockstep, especially with our design partners, but also all our engineering partners. But that's the thing we've been doing for 20 years and we're very good at it. You know, to me, the challenge and the fun is, okay, now we're designing a few games that may be similar in our portfolio, but these pieces like game streaming or a store uh, or how you share content are similar and related. And so how do we go do research on those and then interact with the teams when it might be based on some team they've never heard of? So it's really fascinating. Um, you know, how do you, how do you do user research when almost everything is a horizontal, right? You don't really own anything. You don't get to say, this is my thing and it doesn't care about anything. Like, that's just not the way the world works anymore. So 
that has been really interesting. Great. Yeah. I imagine too, you know, these learnings and different ways that you're pulling uh, insight into the process and, and, and being embedded with the team uh, compound over time, right? So it's not just the thing you're working on that week or that month or that quarter. It's, you know, what are all of the things that we, we've learned over time and, and how have we built this ongoing sort of sense of empathy about our customers? Right. And that's, you know, that's a huge part of it. So I think the first thing is, is we have a really fantastic research repository. Uh, and I was even about to say, oh, we're lucky we have it, but it was a lot of work. <laughs> it was not luck. Uh, there was a core group of folks uh, in Microsoft, not just Xbox, um, that really drove to have this research repository. And I was kind of there at the beginning when they kicked it off. And it was, you know, lots of bumps. And it's one of the biggest questions I see on Twitter or Discord, you know, do we need a research repository and how do we set one up? And I have to say, you know, we've had one for the last few years and has absolutely paid dividends. We have gotten over the hump and now our stakeholders are looking at the repository first and then coming to us with questions or they're expecting to see things there or they're saying, well, they have that repository, go talk to them. Um, you know, the researchers are, you know, they'll, they'll have a bunch of stuff you don't even know, just go talk to them and they'll find it for you. So that has actually been a huge change. It's been kind of incremental over the last few years, but it is amazing to see the difference and to see the expectation now that the stakeholders are like, yeah, there's got to be research on this somewhere. You know, I'll go find it or you'll go find it. So that's been a great, that's been fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm envious of you right now. So is it a homegrown solution or is it something that you do with a vendor? Because I know I've seen, I think it's on Medium, there's the HITS repository that Microsoft is sort of associated with. Is it that? That's exactly it. Yes. And homegrown in the sense that it wasn't a third-party vendor and off the shelf. So, you know, we built it big team effort. Again, I wasn't there to go build it, but you know, we were some of the leading researchers who were getting things into it. And the culture is, you know, again, I, I mentioned the bumps because when we talk about collaboration, again, the working with the teams is great. You know, we have that nailed and most of the researchers I know are very good at that. But now you start telling a bunch of researchers, hey, the thing you're making has to go into the central repository. And by definition, there's going to be some constraints, right? So, you know, here's some things you're going to have to consider when you want to put your report or your artifact in, whether it's metadata or the format or the size, you know, just things like that, right? And so, you know, we are pushing that culture. We truly believe things should be archived and searchable. So if anybody asks me, that's really the big thing. And again, it's probably a no-brainer, but in the old days, we would just archive stuff. And it's like, maybe you could search on SharePoint. I mean, as much as I love SharePoint, that's not really what it's for, right? Um, or you search your inbox, but now you, you know, you're getting to that insight level and you're able to search and just, it's not only is it great when stakeholders have questions, but whenever I onboard a new team member, right? Hey, you're going to be in this space. You're going to work in this game. You're going to work on a first person shooter game. Here's the space you can go read and get up to speed and not only see the insights, but also see how we work and kind of the language you use. So it's, it's basically invaluable, but it takes a lot of work to get there. I do hear that there are off the shelf solutions. I think Anybody who's not Microsoft and smaller or not our giant research org um, should go and use off the shelf as a starting point um, because there are some good solutions out there. And, you know, if you don't have time to even archive your own stuff, the idea is you probably don't have our time. You probably don't have time to go build your own archive, but I highly recommend it. Uh, it's, it's just been fantastic. Yeah, it seems like a big investment, but one that pays off, you know, after all the work has been done. But yes, I have heard that. I've heard Certainly heard that before. Um, I, I wanted to flip to the age-old question um, that everybody asks of UX people, which is, 
you know, what are the metrics or KPIs that you and your team either directly or indirectly influence? Um, and how does this map to Xbox's like overall strategy and purpose? Right. And that is a question that we get quite a bit. I really believe in accountability for user research. I think, you know, we're a pretty mature discipline and I just think we even, we need even more accountability up to those top level KPIs and metrics. So on the low level in our games, we do fun, right? We measure fun of games and that is a KPI. And in fact, over the last 20 years, we've convinced the business that that should be one of their main KPIs when they're designing a game. So, you know, I remember sitting in meetings saying, oh, the fun score is not there. Everybody else, the bug count is fine and the graphics look okay and, you know, ready to ship, but the, the fun score is not there, right? And really having to, you know, have those fun discussions. But more and more, we are, you know, while we're still tracking fun and we're trying to track things around usability, we're putting ourselves on the hook for, you know, monthly active users and retention and churn, uh, you know, growing that funnel. For games, again, it's still about sales and it's still about, you know, making sure a bunch of people play your game. But again, most of these games now are games as a service. So it's one thing to launch a game and a couple of months see who's playing it. It's another thing to, you know, get that retention curve going and keep that churn down. Uh, monetization is a big one, right? So, you know, we put ourselves on the hook for, hey, if we make these UX changes, even within a game, that people are going to, you know, find value and, and want to give us their money because they think it's a good deal uh, to buy something within the game or to sign up for another month of a subscription or something like that. So we have metrics, but I never really like promoting or talking about the user research metrics, right? I want to say, hey, we're sitting here next to developers, next to engineering um, and next to PM or whoever else because we have these big numbers, like Game Pass is an easy one, right? You want people to subscribe to Game Pass and you want fewer people to churn out of Game Pass. So we put ourselves on the hook for that. And then we use, you know, storytelling and kind of qualitative stuff to show our part of that impact, right? Changing UX, understanding the customer, partnering with somebody else. So I would just caution folks from getting too focused on their own, you know, KPIs and really holding themselves accountable to the top ones. Yeah, I love that. And I think it actually takes a fairly, I don't know if mature is the right word, but not everyone can make that connection between the work that you're doing and how it impacts you know, the business. And I mean that as sort of a leadership level mostly. And a big part of that is being able to sort of show the value incrementally over time you know, building yourself into the process, embedding yourself with the teams, all of the things that you got, you're, you're doing now. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorites because, you know, we always get this question. I think because we're, we're researchers and we're data-driven, and of course other people are data-driven, but I always get people coming up to me like, well, I mean, I don't know if I help because I can't say that we did an A-B study and then something changed. But when you sit in a meeting with a product development team, the developers can't say because we added two more features, we sold more games. I mean, they just can't, right? Now they might, but they can't say that. They can't say um, because we fixed more bugs. You know, those last 20 bugs really put us over the top to get us to 2 million in sales. So as user research, I think being more mature is accepting the fact that you don't have to connect every little thing you do to a number. Um, it's great when you have those impact stories. It's great when you can say, hey, we made sign-in easier so more people signed in. And we, you know, we have those all the time. But there is this sort of feeling that, that researchers seem to get of having to show the value and the impact in like a numerical 
form every day when nobody else in the industry does that. You know, marketing might be the exception where they say if we if we put two million dollars more into this, we will sell more. But you know, adding four devs to a product or adding two PMs to a product or writing a spec differently, they can't connect that except to say, you know, we're all on the train together. We're all going to make this great product. So, you know, we have our stories of impact for sure, and it does differ by area. You know, mobile games may have a little more of that. Other games may not. But I just want people to have the confidence to say, well, okay, you're asking me to measure my impact. How do you measure your impact? And we'll go from there, right? Like, great. I can tell you stories. I can show how we're helping. But um, to feel bad if you can't say we increase, increase these things 5% with this study, that to me is, you know, it's not that it's immature, but it's just kind of have to be more confident about it and say, yes, of course we're helping. Let's just keep doing it. Yeah, I love that. So in the book, um, we talk a little bit about how teams at Microsoft uh, and Xbox have uh, worked to provide these opportunities for other people to connect with customers, like even if they aren't the researcher, right? So can you tell our listeners a little bit about, a little bit more about this and, and how you do it? Yeah, absolutely. The you know, the DNA of our team, you know, from the way back, and I, I started about 20 years ago and have, you know, bounced in and out of games, but the DNA is really about having people come and participate in the process. So, you know, that's the first thing. It's kind of the default, right? It's making sure that if you're running a study, people that are watching, you're creating a test plan, people are involved in the test plan. And by people, I just mean, you know, stakeholders that aren't researchers, right? Your teammates. And so that to me is the basis. That's the foundation you get to start and work from. And now, like you mentioned, there is so much data coming in. There's so many ways for a team member to, you know, get that bit of user experience, to see user data, to talk to customers, that they often look for us for those connections as well. And I do think a really big part of our job is building empathy with our stakeholders for our users, right? Um, and I also think it's building empathy for the research process and the research methodology as well. So we start with that as a foundation. And then, yes, we absolutely have, you know, multiple programs in Xbox right now and, you know, that I've been involved in through the years to connect our stakeholders and our teammates. To the customers directly. So, um, you know, there's a gaming studio right now that works on racing games that um, make sure that, you know, a couple times a month, they give a chance for people on the team to go and just sit and talk to users, uh, basically interview them, ask them questions, things like that, so that they just get that steady, you know, constant uh, visibility. You know, of course, it's a reminder that they're not their users, but then that's only part of it. Now, let me go talk to the users. We have other programs where it's, um, you know, we'll do focus groups and things like that, but the research isn't the point. It's really the getting the exposure, right? Getting, um, you know, doing those interview sessions, even if we don't have a strong research question. Part of it is that we can say, hey, yes, we'd love to put you in front of a customer. Now, let me teach you a little bit about bias. Let me teach you a little bit of how to ask questions. Uh, and the beauty is, you know, in this day and age, it's not me knocking on the door, telling somebody about user research. It's them knocking on my door and saying, okay, I could basically do user research myself, but I'm a PM. So I want to go talk to somebody and I promise I'll do a good job and I'll come back. And like, and that's so much fun, right? So then we can work to connect those folks with the actual users. But I think that, especially with the hot topic of democratization and all that, I mean, there's a wide range of how you do it. So on the one end is letting people go off and do their own research without you, which I don't agree with. 
And then, uh, you know, somewhere in the middle of that really good spot is when you're doing it together and you're taking the people you trust and you're letting them go off and, you know, interact with participants and get user feedback, um, whether it's in person, whether it's through going through Reddit or anything like that. So there's such a wide range right now, but we, we definitely have specific programs like, hey, regardless of what's going on with the product development or research plan, you will come in and see some users this month and you will come in and see some users that month, or we will share some videos from something recent, or we will, you know, either remotely or in person, take you on a site visit. So I absolutely believe in that. I don't think um, anybody should work at Xbox for more than a couple of months without seeing or hearing an actual user, right? And hopefully it's within, you know, every couple of weeks. So that's really something we strive for. Yeah, that's great. It's interesting, too, to think about that as more of, of, you know, when you think about democratization, to your point, I feel like there's many ways to do it. And but the main thread with democratization is that you're empowering somebody else to go talk to customers or do, you know, um, a usability study or, or, or something where they are actually in the driver's seat doing it. We've been thinking a lot of users testing about what like what if democratization, and maybe it's not the right word, democratization, but what if democratization is more about actually building access to these perspectives and building the narrative around who your customers are and building this like shared understanding, right? Of like who are we designing this thing for? I don't know what you think about that. And and if you have ways that you build this sense of like a shared understanding of your customers. Right. And I think that's a great way to think about it. And that is something we strive for. You know, we have other, other folks that I work with uh, that I know in different parts of Microsoft talk about user research being a team sport. And I love that um, because you're bringing people along, you're doing it with them. We absolutely believe in access. That's part of having our hits repository. It's part of using remote tools. Um, it's part of, you know, capturing video. Um, you know, we think about it as the user voice, right? We're trying to bring the user voice into the teams, which is different than user data. Right, so seeing and hearing a person, we also bring in user data, but being able to see and hear people just reminds you, you know, the experiences you're building for and, and hearing it firsthand. But for sure, we do have that culture right now of access and perspectives, the way you're talking about, which I absolutely understand. We don't, I think, if you hold on too tightly to any of that, then, like I said, people are just going to go to Reddit or they're just going to start calling other people. You know, uh, they're going to watch streams and get, you know, consider that research. So, totally, I think. I think if you're not building access and you're not sharing your insights and you're not bringing people along for the ride, you're not going to get very far. But that is different than, hey, you go do a year's worth of research without a researcher. And I, I don't actually think anybody or most people you talk to about democratization aren't actually saying that. So you just have to dig in a little bit deeper to see what they really are saying. Because I do love that idea of bringing people along and sharing access and make it, making it feel like we are getting customer feedback, not I am getting it to you and then handing it off. That That's definitely an old model. Yeah, totally. Like if you think about the angle of it, right? Like the end goal is to get people to get exposure to customers, understand their needs, understand how they engage with something, what their expectations are. And maybe if the, the path to get to that end goal, I think has traditionally been in, in sort of the democratization approaches that I've seen all about giving people the power to collect the data, yeah, but thinking about it a little differently, I just think it's interesting. And I think with with some of the work that that you've done and the Microsoft teams have done around building that repository and all the other things you do to kind of bring the customer to the teams, uh, super, super interesting. 
Yeah. And, you know, and, and streaming and the internet and remote tools are amazing too. We could, you know, back when our labs were open before uh, the pandemic, you could have 30 people in a lab playing a game and somebody out in England watching, you know, picture a screen cut up 30 ways and watch each person playing the game and be able to pick which screen they want to zoom in on. I mean, so it's, you know, in real time, right. Not to mention the videos and things after. So, you know, the, the tools are there, the technology is there. And I think, you know, going back to your question of, you know, people being at home, now the teams are at home, right? And that's, we're even amping that up even more um, to make sure people are involved and things are accessible. Um, so it's it's actually helped. You know, we were all worried that when the labs got closed and we couldn't do in-person testing that you'd never see a user again, but it's actually the opposite because being able to click on something, you know, you can just watch them. So it's been it's been good or at least not as bad from that perspective lately. Yes, I've heard that from, from lots of folks in the space. I think we're going to, or let's flip over to lightning questions. So these are the, uh, these are a set of four questions we ask every guest that comes onto the show. Uh, it's fun to, to kind of look at, at all the responses over time. So uh, what's a book that you've recently read that you'd recommend to our listeners? Yeah, it's a little bit older book, but it's called Made to Stick and it's all about storytelling. Uh, and I didn't read it that recently, so maybe I'm cheating, but I just recommend that to all user researchers or anyone in UX because, you know, so much of what we do is trying to get across insights in kind of a sticky way. Uh, and I think we can learn a lot from like brand and marketing and things like that about how to get your message to be sticky and not just be, you know, a 15 page report. Got it. Yeah, I love it. Um, what's a piece of advice that you would give to someone uh, trying to convince others to invest in customer feedback? The biggest piece of advice I would give, and I do give all the time, is to speak in their language. So I think, you know, it's easy to say, well, you need user data and, you know, we care about the users and you don't. And I just think those are kind of like naive approaches, right? So, you know, understanding people's goals and how research and user feedback can fit into those goals is really the way to do it. I've talked about, not just me, you know, we've all talked about user research in terms of design intent in the past. Like, you tell me what you're trying to do and we'll try to help you get there. Um, and even more recently, I've been talking about it in terms of building confidence over time uh, and reducing risk over time, right? You know you're going to make a bunch of decisions between now and when you ship. Let us in. Let us bring user feedback in to help make those decisions better, give you more confidence, and reduce the risk as we go. Um, and I find very often if that's where people's heads at, then they'll respond to that because that's what they're thinking about, not why it's just objectively better to involve users in the process. That's not going to get you anywhere. Got it. So you're saying don't lead with like methodology speak and research speak? No, only if you want to put people to sleep. Um, you know, of <laughs> course, of course, you can know your audience, right? These days, people are very savvy about that. So they do get excited about it. But, you know, we tend to talk about research questions, research problems. So, you know, the, the, the simplest advice is, you know, figure out what their problems are and then explain how you can help. I love it. All right. So um, what's a recent great experience that you've had lately and what made it so great? Oh, yeah. This is an easy one because my favorite website in the world right now is Canva. Uh, so canva.com where you can go up and you can make flyers and videos. And it's just the absolute perfect user experience. And it really hits on useful, usable, and desirable, right? It's like you know, we talked about content creators earlier, like everybody now is their own marketing. You know, I work with my PTA and I do marketing for them, right? So I'm up there making flyers and YouTube cover album photos. And the fact that they have given kind of the rest of the internet, what we need right now, 
in a really great UX with amazing content in there. Uh, I just think it's amazing. And half the time I recommend it, the person I'm talking to says, oh yeah, I already use it. It's great. Um, so I think if you want a really good example of not just great UX, but really being useful, really having a really good purpose and filling a need, uh, I would go to Canva right now and check it out. And I do not get paid to say that. I've said it on Twitter. I've said it everywhere. I think it's just a great example. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Um, fun fact, they purchased user testing before they even got their Series A funding. So <laughs> super cool. That does story. not surprise me. If anybody's yeah. listening from Canva, I would love to talk to you about the research you did for that because it's so well done and you see it growing and scaling. I know they have video on there now. And uh, I would just, it does not surprise me if they have a really great research program and they really drive customer feedback into it. So um, yeah. I would just go check them out. I feel like what Canva has done for design, like, don't you think that research could potentially be on the same path? Like that we could take something that usually requires a specialist and, and that understands all the different intricacies of, of how to set up a study. Don't you think we could create some sort of like you're in a Canva for, for user testing and you're like, oh, I want to get, you know, five people reacting to my homepage. I absolutely think that. I think when, you know, we were talking about democratization, I think we talked about tools like yours um, and there's, you know, quite a few of them that I think we are on the same trajectory. I think anybody with a smartphone is now a photographer. Um, yes. And I think now, you know, Canva is bringing that to graphic design. And I'm someone who uses the old school, the Photoshop and all that and, you know, video editing, which I love because you have all that power and control. Yeah. Um, and the same way that I will use some of these deeper research methods. But then, yeah, you have the mechanical Turks of the world and, uh, you know, there's just all the survey gizmos and, you know, all these easy tools that anybody can just jump in. Usually it's get a free trial, get some feedback. Um, so I absolutely think we're on there. I don't know you know, where it ends. I don't know um, how, you know, how the next innovation is going to come along. But yes, I mean, thinking that it's, you know, PhD researchers in a lab somewhere talking to people is like, you know, thinking you had to go, you know, build your own dashboard out of scratch just to look at some business data, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I do think we're, we're very much on the same trajectory, which is exciting. Um, and, you know, it's just, you can do it. You don't have to have permission to do research right now. You can just start doing it. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um, speaking of the future, um, when you think about the future of UX, uh, what are you most excited about? Well, I was just having this conversation the other day. I, I am still waiting. I'm excited, but I'm still waiting for the sort of machine learning and AI um, to help us with the sentiment analysis, to help us with the qualitative data analysis, to let me do a survey of 10,000 people and then get 10,000 pieces of qualitative feedback uh, and not spend my next two weeks going through every single one of them, right? Um, now there's, we're getting so close. So um, I just can't wait for like that first, that first company, that first person to figure it out because it's going to be amazing when you can quickly understand the, the sentiment and the qualitative responses, and then do that over time, right? Like I can, I can go through and, you know, uh, do qualitative research, but you want to be able to do it on a monthly basis. Every annoying MPS survey you get that asks you how you feel or rate it one to 10, and maybe you type something in the box, like how do we do that next month and see if people's sentiment changed? Um, I know there's just a lot of work going on in that space, and I, I don't think it'll actually be that far into the future, um, but that'll be a huge, I mean, talk about, you know, the Canva of research, right? I think that would be one of those where it'd be like, okay, here's the top five themes and you trust it and you believe it. 
Uh, I haven't seen anything like that yet. I've seen where give you the themes, but nothing that I trust and believe yet. So I think that's going to be the next big leap. Yeah, I love that. I love thinking about that too. And it's almost a puzzle. I think that it's like my, I'm not sure my brain has sort of like wrapped around this concept of like, how it, how is this actually done? And, and is it actually possible, right? Because I, I do think about, like, if you think back to some of Rolf, uh, Rolf Mullick's studies around um, the comparative usability evaluations, where you have like 10 different teams testing the same thing, and right. they all come back with findings and most of them aren't overlapping and, you know, just the subjectivity of it. Like if you watch something, I watch something, and then we both write down what were the top five things that, you know, are issues or or observations, like they might not be the same. And so, and likely aren't going to be the same just based on our view of the world, our lens that we see things through. I find this topic fascinating too. And there's certainly, there's certainly runway there. I just don't know how you solve the problem. Yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, kind of like I was talking about that I never predicted we'd be t- uh, typing more than talking. But now I'm on my phone and my friend is like, hey, we're going out for dinner. And then there's a suggestion that says, great, I'll meet you there. And you're like, yeah, that nails it. And you just tap it. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't say, you know, a uh, hundred other things that it can say. So I don't know what goes in the black box. I know very smart people who are working on it right now, but it just can't be that far off. And I actually think that whoever whoever does it well is going to do it sort of per subject area, right? Because a bunch of qualitative data in gaming, you can just imagine what you would get from gaming versus what you would get from office or, um, you know, feedback on a website or something like that. So whoever comes in is going to have to say, we are going to build this model around your subject. Um, Again, which I think people are starting to do right now, but it'll be, I think it'll happen. And I think it'll be pretty amazing. It doesn't mean you won't need qualitative researchers anymore. It will just mean you can get through 10,000 pieces of data instead of 200 pieces of data in a day. And I think that's going to be really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Tom, for for joining. This was a really fun conversation. Um, We really appreciate you coming on and um, thanks so much. I love it. Thank you. This was a lot of fun and uh, talk to you soon. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast, and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play, so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.